0: To the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. You can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers. You can please drop us a rating or review on Apple. We really appreciate it. This episode, I am honored to welcome to the show Craig Price. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Thanks, Robert. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So tell people a little bit about who you are. It's your first time on the show and uh, all about matinee heroes.
1: Well, I'm a podcaster. I've been podcasting for about nine, 10 years. um, Various different things. My main thing right now is matinee heroes, which has been going on for about three years. It's myself and uh, film critic, Alan Cerny from vital thrills. We take a movie we love and talk about it each week and Unfortunately, a lot of people, thankfully, there's not that many podcasts like this one or Matt and the Heroes where people talk about movies they love. It seems to be people talk about movies they want to break apart and rip apart or talk about ironically. But we talk about heroic movies we absolutely love and try to find lessons we can learn from the movies if we can, or just talk about the movie itself, why we love it, um, what's, so great, what's so great about the movie, what, what really stirs emotions from it. And so we've been doing that for three years and it's been pretty successful. Um, one of the things that it has spun off is we just wrapped up the first video stream season of a game show we, we do. Because in the podcast, we talk about the movie and then we recast the movie. And we recast the movie using Doctor Who rules. We You can take any actor through time and space. So we do that on every episode. But when we, we made it into a game show and we just wrapped up, the season finale with a playoff. So we just had our playoff August 23rd. Um, But since we record in advance, I can't tell you who won. (laughs) (laughs) No spoilers. But we've had, it was a great 16 weeks. We had eight competitors. uh, You know, we had eight shows, the winners of each show then came to an eight person playoff. And it was quite interesting, especially in the semifinals where we had to recast animated or Muppet movies with human beings.
0: Ooh. I love the I love the Muppet side of it. I'm a big Muppet fan. So oh yeah, I, I, I you see that thing all the time. That what is it? That meme where it's like recast a a movie uh, one. You know what, what is it? You can replace the whole cast of one movie with every, with Muppets except for one. You get to keep one person or that kind of thing. Well, that's the hard part. I mean, yeah. that's I'm sorry. That's the easy part because
1: whoever's the lead character is going to be Kermit. Whoever is the lead lady is going to be Miss Piggy. Going the opposite direction is more difficult mm-hmm. so who do you have that can be Kermit obviously we 're not going by just voice it 's a personality thing, so it 's like who can embody who Kermit is you know he 's kind he 's uh ambitious he 's talented, but he's also soft spoken but and he can sometimes be a doormat, but sometimes he can get a little angry, he can sing, he can dance, he can play banjo, so finding someone like that is difficult because yeah. he so we had I know one of them was Steve Martin, someone had recast Steve Martin
0: and the other one was Stanley Tucci. Those are actually pretty good picks. I mean the Steve oh, Martin yeah. one is especially he's got he was in the Muppet movie so you have like a direct right. line a direct connection there too. Right, but you also he also has the personality yeah. because if
1: you've ever seen him in like Father of the Bride or you see him in um the, the, the other one was a dad. Cheaper by the Dozen. Cheaper yeah. by the Dozen. See, that's how you can tell the generations. I missed that one because that was probably in my 20s, and I didn't really go see that. But Father of the Bride was right when I was still a teenager. Right. Um, but he's he's got that warmth about him. He can be a jerk if he wants to be. But most of the time, Steve Martin is kind of like America's dad who can play the banjo and be funny and be goofy. And that's mm. Kermit. And you know, so we kind of did that all the way through Dr. Teeth and Animal and so wow. I had Klaus, I had Klaus Kinski for animal. Nice. Um, so we, that shows you the how wide we go. We go for anybody it could be someone new or it could be someone like Klaus Kinski, who half the people probably don't even know who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy no, I, German dude.
0: I love I <laughs> yeah, I love I love that idea and I love the the Matinee Heroes idea, especially, you know, on on this show, as you mentioned, I, I like Focusing on the positive. I mean, everybody has their own per- perspective when it comes to movies. Art is obviously subjective and everybody brings their own, you know, their own experience to it and all of that, which is kind of what this show is all about. So I love that you focus on more of the positive side of it instead of, you know, all right, let's tear this thing down to make ourselves feel better about what we've got going on. Or, or just talking about the, the latest release. Like it's a little more, uh, I don't know, it's a little more unexpected and personal than all of that, I guess
1: yeah, and then you know also, you're not when especially with current releases, never mind Covid, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Even before that, it was difficult to a get access. Um, then you're kind of forced to talk about a movie that you may not like. Right. I'd much rather sit around and talk to people who love movies because there's more a there's more energy, there's more passion. They actually know what they're talking about and they care about what they're talking about versus someone who's just trying to find a, a joke. Or trying to find something to, you know, stick a fork in and, right. and cause problems. Now, do I do that at some of the movies? Yes, because not every movie that Alan and I pick are mutually loved. I it's more, I I can I can tolerate that movie. So let's talk about it. But there's never a movie that we outright either one of us outright hates. Uh, what's the point of talking about a movie eight? Hey.
0: Yeah, exactly. I is there ever anything that you do you rewatch the movies before you do the episodes one and two, is there ever anything where you're like, Oh, I loved that as a kid. And then you watch it and you're like, Oh no, this is not aged. Oh, well, like sure. not- <laughs> that happens all the time, especially <laughs> in
1: movies of the eighties. Um, Cause one of the other things we do. So the format of our show is, you know, we have a guest on and we talk it to the guests and talk about them kind of what we're going to do here. Yeah, And then we talk about the movie a good 30 45 minutes or however it goes sometimes it goes longer if it's a great movie and it's a long movie and we talk about it quite a bit then we recast it and then we double feature it and we so we find a movie that matches the movie that you think would be a good if you had a day at the movies what two movies would you watch and sometimes you realize that you had a movie in mind for your double feature then you watch the movie because i always watch it a couple days before we record And you go, oh, this is not as good as I thought. Um, I mean, Escape from New York is something that came out, and I had not seen it. I thought I did. It's one of those movies that that came out in 1981. I would have been, what, you know, eight years old, not a movie like Indiana Jones, where my parents take me to. Exactly. Uh, They're not going to take me to see Snake Plissken. And (laughs) so that movie has been ripped off so many times by so many different movies that I had when I had watched it I'm sitting there going I don't remember any of this but it feels like something that I remember and then you start to see oh this is not what I thought it was and it's not as maybe as good as I thought it was and so yeah I have that quite a bit especially nostalgia movies that maybe when I was a kid in the 80s I saw in a loop on HBO and I don't and now I was like Krull oh god Krull was awful but Alan my co-host well that's a hill he's willing to die on and yeah. so we, you know, we watched it. I hated that movie. I was watching it going, I've never seen this movie before because I'm not a big fantasy guy. And it was also seemed kind of boring. And Hey, I, I kind of, op- I try to watch it with an open mind. Cause I've gone into other movies thinking the same thing going, Oh, this is fantastic. And no, Carl was garbage and it was tough. And so I try to bite my, t- I try not to be too mean cause I can be really mean if I want to, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that's not the way that's not what the show's about. So it's, it's very rare that it happens, but this gives me a chance to see movies. I haven't seen in a long time, or maybe movies I've never seen before. And that's one of the reasons I love the move while well, well, doing it because just this past year. So there's some idea of what we've done. We've done Spartacus, the original, yeah. um, you know, Braveheart, which is a great one. Um, I was forced to watch the twin peaks Firewalk with me. Now there's a movie I did not like, but I was forced to watch it. Cause I did a, an event with the Twin Peaks people. Had you seen uh, the show? Oh, yeah, and, and I okay. rewatched the show as well because, like I said, I had a, I had an event where I had to interview the cast reunion, right? And so I had to watch the shows so I'd get ready for this, and then and so we, and because we also put the audio of the panel on the show, we did Twin Peaks as a as a reason for it, and it was like, oh, this was not as good as I I I know people love it, but it's not as good as people really remember. Um, and then we'd like enemy mind, but then you do stuff like into the spider verse, or we did a whole, we did a thing about the Mandalorian in this. And it's not a movie, it's a show. We don't really do television, but because it's such a great new thing that is fantastic. When Disney plus came out, we did Disney plus movies and I didn't watch a lot of Disney movies when I was a kid. So there's a whole bunch of things that I revisited like newsies. I don't like musicals, but we did, we did a musical month in December, a couple of years ago, just because uh, you have to l- learn these genres and you've,
0: Sometimes you get surprise yourself. Like, some of these movies aren't nearly as bad as I thought. Yeah, and you have to be open, I think, to be a real cinephile, you have to be open to just exploring something who, that seems like it's outside of your wheelhouse, like a musical or whatever, just to kind of be well-rounded. I think it changes your, it changes your appreciation and view of cinema in general when you expose yourself uh, to, to those other projects that you ordinarily would just, like, eh, snub your nose at and that kind of thing.
1: Well, it also informs you of the culture of other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So like
0: Escape from New York, not a movie, again, not a movie I
1: like that much. But as I'm watching it, I'm seeing how it has influenced the entire 80s. You know, this whole thing of a guy, you know, one guy wrecking crew going into this. Because like the Warriors are based on it. You could see uh, influences of uh, uh, Blade Runner. Um, a lot of this dystopian stuff that happens in the 80s was perfect and it all came from this john carpenter movie it's just one of those things you've got to understand it's like almost like archaeology look at that segue oh it's almost like (laughs) film archaeology where you're going back in time and you're
0: seeing where the the bones of the movies you love come from right yeah absolutely and you mentioned escape from new york which as you said came out in 1981 just like raiders of the lost ark so uh, I mean, before we get into the the film itself, what it was what is kind of your experience with the Indiana Jones franchise? Uh, you know, I guess post Raiders, where does it sit in your pantheon of? Of uh, matinee heroes to segue back oh. to your show and and as far as like your favorite series and that kind of thing. That Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite movie. So when okay.
1: you uh, you offered up, well, you can pick the movie. I'm like, oh, he, this guy doesn't know what he's doing because <laughs> I'm going to be able to pick because I I want to Raiders of the Lost Ark and I, I you hadn't done it yet and I'm like, okay, that's yeah. that's strange because that's a, it's such a great overall movie. But I grew up. I'm a I'm on my birthday's in August. I'm going to be 47. And I was like eight years old when this came out. And that means at eight years old and my dad and my mom were willing to take me to this movie because it's a kind of a violent movie for an eight year old in the eighties, mm-hmm. but it's not that bad. It, you know, it's, especially nowadays, nowadays it's nothing. I mean, I think they play it unedited on CBS. So it's <laughs> Probably, yeah. I mean, I think they bleep out the one word because I remember that watching Raiders of Lost Ark, then we and my, my brothers and my friends were all out in the woods playing with ropes, with whips and stuff and and all that cool stuff. I remember in the fourth grade, in 1985, when the Laserdisc came out, my fourth grade class watched it. You know, And they even made a big deal about, well, they're going to say shit in a second, but that's it. And it's true. It's if you can get past the violence, there's that one word that mm-hmm. might be objectionable to some parents, but that is something everybody loved. We we flipped we just lost our minds when they played that at school because we had mm-hmm. seen it. And then we're like, we don't have to do work. And it was like the last week of school. And it was warm outside and we're like, oh well, we'll just roll on the TV, get the laser disc booted up, and bam, you watch the first side. Tomorrow we're gonna flip the big old disc and we'll watch the second side in two days of Indiana Jones in class he hit right when everything that a kid wants you, you're out playing. So what are you going to play? Well, I'm going to play. Let's beat up Nazis. You know who let's, I'm climbing on rocks. I'm outside swinging from ropes I'm climbing trees and trying to dodge imaginary boulders and running away from villagers that are attacking us. Cause I stole their golden idol. Right. And then, All my friends loved it. My brother loved it, who's five years older than me. My dad loved it. So it was so universal, and it was so available to everybody that it was just the greatest thing in the world. And then you get the Temple of Doom, and they put a proxy in for me. Because Short Round is the same age as me. Yeah, Well, All of a sudden, I'm playing in the woods, and I go to the movies, and there's a kid just like me having adventures with Indiana Jones. Oh, my God. So you can see that the hooks went in deep with indiana jones and especially the timing Now that may not be for everybody else because a lot of people watch it on tape later on or they watch it in dvds when they're older but if you were a kid at that age range it's very difficult to find too many male adults who don't absolutely adore Ray's La stark because it was just their evolution of them growing up
0: mm-hmm. yeah so much of it i think is is about that about when you see a movie, what formative age you are and that kind of thing, because my my experience with this movie, I, I saw this as a kid uh, a million years ago, and then saw the sequels sporadically. But I didn't really rewatch Raiders a lot as a kid. I actually saw probably Last Crusade more because that was we had that on VHS. But I'm act- I I was born in '83, so yeah. I sort of was more the more age appropriate for when Last Crusade came out. And then uh, didn't really, like, I so I don't, I rewatching Raiders, I didn't really have that same connection because it wasn't as much of a part of my childhood in the same way. And it's, it's, it's become such a, an iconic movie. And sort of like you were saying about Escape from New York, that you watch it now and you're like, oh, is this where every other movie in the last 30 years got that trope from or whatever? Uh, It's, it's just been like, I kept watching, I was watching it with my wife last night. And I, I just kept writing, like making notes, like, "Oh, this is that's an iconic moment, and that's this thing that's been cop make parodied a bazillion times." And it's it's one of those films that, even though I haven't seen it a whole lot in my life, like I, I think I probably the last time I saw it all the way through was a couple decades ago. Um, that it felt like I had seen it so much, just because it's permeated the culture in such a crazy way. And uh, as far as the violence, I mean, this was. PG when it came out and almost got an R because there was no PG-13 at that point because of the head exploding thing. Right. So and they put a <laughs> little bit more fire. This exactly. just shows you how
1: stupid it is the rating system is because they put a little bit more fire over it but yet you can still clearly see his head explode. It's <laughs> almost like scanners. And the MPA is like, that's fine. It's good. All right. You can't see it as much. I'm like, All right, sure. Well, you know, the <laughs> trick a lot of directors do is that they know it's going to be violent. but make it even more violent, mm-hmm. knowing that the MPA is going to uh, say, hey, this is too violent. Cut it down. And so they'll edit it the way they wanted to. And they'll go oh well you made the changes it's approved and it's like you idiots Um, (laughs) I know of a I can't remember the name of the actual movie but I've known directors who have said I've just simply uh, resubmitted the film again uh, a few weeks later and they had forgotten and it's so arbitrary and weird they they had passed it through so whatever their problem was before this time it wasn't so it's
0: yeah yeah or it's especially with the violence like in in American cinema in general like the uh you know you show show a breast or say more than two f-bombs automatic r but yeah shooting violence explosions that's fine whatever i don't understand that logic whatsoever but okay no because we're prudes uh uh, you know
1: but now i will say the temple of doom the yanking the heart out was a little bit too far and that is when that's one of the movies that was the impetus for pg-13 it wasn't one that was going to be pg it was that in gremlins when people Mm -hmm. went this one is just too much but it's not r i can understand that but raiders like i said nowadays you could easily watch this and all they have to do is change one word and maybe i'm sorry they do say Scheiße, which is uh german for shit Mm. Uh, you just change a couple of words that most people wouldn't even notice you're ready to go there's right. very little you have to change for this movie to be acceptable in a, for a wide audience. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how accessible this movie is and how many people from all ranges. Because the reason my dad loves it is my dad is a kid of the 40s and 50s and he used to go to the movies for 10 cents and spend all day there and they'd have serials like this ahead of his movies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I love it because this is great. And if you have kids, I know this it's just a fun, great adventure because the great thing is it's set in the past so it doesn't have to seem like it's up to date every time Uh, that's why i think movies period movies do a lot better on the rewatch because it's already set in the past so anything
0: that's set in the past you don't have to go well why don't they have a cell phone this would fix everything exactly yeah and i think it's people sometimes maybe forget how closely that this is, this kind of started was in was um, the idea for this movie basically came from a very similar place as star Wars, obviously both George Lucas creations, mm-hmm. both sort of throwbacks to the old serials. Like it, it's Buck Rogers and flash Gordon type of deal. And I think that uh, that was kind of the idea with star Wars as well. The, the long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, there's a certain timelessness to these movies uh, th- that, like you said, I think makes it, you can watch it 30 years from now and it's still as relevant or uh, as as it is now, basically. And it's, um, yeah. So what is your thoughts on the, the sequels? You mentioned Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, Crystal Skull, and, you know, we sort of, uh, you sort of gave me a little bit of a hint of what, where you, how you feel about this. And do you want to see a fifth one?
1: It, each Indiana Jones sequel is its own genre movie. Mm-hmm. So... Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, is a perfect movie in every aspect. That's, I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture. It d- deserves to be up there because anybody can watch it. It's an action movie, yes, but it's a pure cinema experience. Then Temple of Doom, they wanted a little darker, so it was actually a horror movie. As far as Steven Spielberg was concerned, he was going to. That's why there's people's hearts being ripped out, kids getting whipped. Uh, it's you know, there's a lot of they're eating snakes and weird things coming out and foods like that. Um, So the the scares were supposed to be there. There was a backlash because they thought it was going to be a fun-loving Indiana Jones movie. And it it still was, but it was a little too dark for a lot of people. So they went the exact opposite and they made The Last Crusade, which is a great movie. Kind of a buddy cop comedy uh, where you got the dad, Sean Connery, who's only 12 years older Mm -hmm. than Harrison Ford. But let's be honest, 12-year-old Sean Connery could possibly have conceived a child of Harrison Ford. I mean, not everybody can say that at 12. (laughs) That's a good point. 12 year old Sean Connery is more manly than I'll ever be. Probably. Exactly. Oh, I just saw call of the wild with Harrison Uh Ford. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's 70. He was 77 when he did that. And he's in, you know, there's a scene with him with his shirt off and I'm like, he's in better shape at 78 than I've ever been in my life. Cause it's never going to get better. Cause yeah. I'm already at the, on the downslope. Um, uh, and it's kind of depressing how great shape he's in, uh, but the Sean Connery's the same way up until, you know, cause Sean Connery is like 80, 83, 80. Well, let's see, 78. He's almost 90. Yeah. 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 Now, he's not, he's 90. So he's not really as buff, but up until he was 85, he was still pretty, pretty
0: flexible and pretty manly. Yeah. Uh, so I can sure. imagine what he was like at 12. <laughs> and And I think that's a big we'll get in we still have to queue up the actual the trailer and get to the actual movie, but I think um that's a big part- it, it, Harrison Ford is the reason that these movies work as well oh. as they did. I mean, because he has that, as we were saying, that sort of masculine presence, but just he's just that classic movie star charisma about him that he can carry all those different genres kind of in equal measure.
1: Well, Lucas and Spielberg actually told their casting director, find me a Harrison Ford type. Yeah. They didn't want to use Harrison Ford because George Lucas didn't want to have a situation where everybody thought that every movie he does is going to have Harrison Ford in it. Kind of like uh, De Niro and Scorsese. Um, And in fact, they only had him in there uh, at the last minute because it's like, you know, uh, Tom Selleck was supposed to do it and CBS won't let him out of his contract let's go with what we, if we're looking for a Harrison Ford type, let's just get Harrison. He's going to be great. And then ha- Harrison came in, and boom, and it's an icon is created. And this is Harrison Ford's role. When he dies, they're going to say Indiana Jones passed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not going to say Han Solo. They're going to say Her- leading man or megastar, but they're going to, Indiana Jones is the picture they're probably going to use. It's, he is Indiana Jones. And to remake it with somebody else, I'm okay with it, but they're going to have to be a Harrison Ford type you're not going to be able to like kind of change it a little bit and make him well, let's make him a little more nerdy because he's a professor. No, you've got to have a a man's man in there who's, but also someone who can be smart. And Mm. I don't envy anybody who has to take his, take his spot. But I think,
0: I think there's some people out there that could. Well, you, you, you mentioned earlier about how you have all this recasting experience. So is there anyone that you can think of now that would like, say, let's say, tomorrow they Lucasfilm or Disney releases a statement. All right, we're still going to do Indiana Jones five, but it's going to be, you know, younger Indiana Jones or whatever. And, and Harrison will, you know, bookend the, the story. Who would you, who would you cast as like, you know, maybe, maybe around the age he is in Raiders, maybe, you know, a few years earlier or whatever. Well, I mean,
1: the names that I'm going to say are not original. They've been floated out there. And right. I, the number one is Chris Pratt. Like, mm-hmm. because I think Chris Pratt has the attitude because uh, he's a little sarcastic. Uh, he's in great shape. He can do all that stuff. He's kind of doing that now in Jurassic Park movies. Yeah, that's he, He's kind of stealing the Indiana Jones instead of being an archaeologist. He's a zoologist. And, and the other one that I really like, and he's growing on me every time I see him, is Chris Pine. Uh, the more I see Chris Pine, the more he does, the more I really like what he does. And I think he could fit that too, especially if when he's in Wonder Woman. I think that personality would be perfect for an Indiana Jones type. And he can do the, he's, he can, obviously he's in great shape. He's, he can sign for a five picture deal. Those two guys, the two
0: Chris's, I would easily see those two guys do that. Yeah. The Pratt connection is also kind of ironic or, or fitting too, because he's basically playing a Han Solo type in the Guardians movies as well. So he's kind of tapping yeah, into a lot of he's that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he's kind of a dumb Han Solo. I mean, not that Han Solo is <laughs> the smartest true. guy in the world, but you, Peter Lord is pretty stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, it's fair enough. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I don't know how, what the sense is of having 80-year-old Harrison Ford trying to... I yeah. mean, we already got our, our, for lack of a better term, old, in, old Indiana Jones movie in 2008, and most people generally regard that as the weakest of the franchise, and I think rightfully so. Well, I don't think
1: that was Harrison Ford's fault though. No, 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 Um, not at all. Because that's the thing is you see Harrison Ford and from the nineties, pretty much from right after regarding Henry. So regarding Henry was a, he took a risk mosquito coast, regarding Henry back to back were risks that he took that were art movies that didn't do well. And he's like, I'm never doing that again. And so we lost the witness Harrison Ford. We lost the actor Harrison Ford and we got the action hero Harrison Ford. Which is great because he was good in The Fugitive uh, and he was good at What Lies Beneath. Uh, but most of the movies from the 90s and the early 2000s, he, it felt like they were Czech movies where he's just doing it for a check. Mm-hmm. And then recently, the last couple movies that he's done, you start to see the re-engaged Harrison Ford. I mean, he was he was plugged back in for The Force Awakens. Seeing him as Han Solo again, and he wasn't phoning it in, was fantastic. Um, he rechecked in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You know, he you could see that he was excited to be there and happy to be there. Call of the Wild. I love that movie. I think that movie's great for him because he's playing a, a grumpy old man, and that's what he is. <laughs> yeah, easy. And, no, no acting required. And he was engaged in. He was engaged in the crystal skull, but the crystal skull. Now that genre is a B movie from the fifties. It's trying to be a science fiction B movie. And they kind of lost what all the fun stuff of Indiana Jones was about. And I think there was still, I think George Lucas was still stuck on the phantom menace, you know, the prequels technology. So there was a lot of CGI green screen going on that they didn't need to do. That's the great thing about these movies is there's so much practical effects. Mm Mm-hmm. That when you see someone actually do it, it makes a big difference versus having you know Shia LaBeouf with CGI Swinging monkeys with the monkeys, yeah, yeah. And oh. that's the other thing is they were trying to. I think they were trying to pass the torch to Shia LaBeouf, and I I didn't think that that was a good story to tell. I don't think that's. I think that's a story you can tell. I just don't think that story was a good story to tell.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I the reason I bring up how the fifth one would be kind of old indie is that I, <laughs> I feel like they i feel like crystal skull was their chance to do that story and they botched it and it's like now oh, it's yeah. too late it's like it's like with the you know we talked before the call about the x men friend new mutants trying to come out it's like it's like them trying to do dark phoenix again it's like you did it you tried it it didn't work and you tried it again and it still didn't work so it's like i, I don't know i just feel like it's better that you're just going to damage the brand like it's oh sure or then by trying to do that, then just giving it a little space and read like Batman begins for last. Well, speaking like, of Batman,
1: you know. I'm hoping they, I was hoping they would do something like they're doing with Batman. So the Robert Pattinson Batman is supposed to be much more cerebral. He's supposed to be the world's greatest detective in this movie. So they're making that movie. Cause that's, that's the reputation of Batman. Not mm-hmm. only is he a billionaire, but he's supposed to be one of the smartest people in the world who creates all these gadgets And we never really see that in any of the Batman movies. We see that he's a smart guy, but he's not like a super insane genius. He's just, uh, he's smarter than the average bear and he's in good shape and he's got billions of dollars and he somehow buys, you know, technology from wherever the places are. I mean, that's what Morgan Freeman was saying is how they would buy a hundred thousand pieces of this equipment so they could smuggle in the five pieces for you, Batman. (laughs) Right. Um, But Batman himself the actual comic book and the actual character is the world's greatest detective. And he's mostly about thinking. And I wish they had done that with Indiana Jones. Cause he's old. He's too old to be swinging. Um, it was fun to see him at that beginning part. We swing into the where area 51 warehouse, but at some point you're like, no, he can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And if they had gone with the, he is a professor who's an archeologist and he's unlocking these clever traps or something versus him still having to punch Nazis. Or in this case, Russians. I, I think they went out. I think you're right. They went about it the wrong way. They should have focused more on his smarts versus his brawn because at 70, he'll be. If they they they're supposed to start, they were supposed to start this year, but they're not. Obviously, it's been pushed back. He'll be 79 next July. So when it comes out, he'll be 80, 81. I mean, not that he can't do it, but what can he do? Right. I mean, I, I I think even if they use stunt doubles, it's still not going to be believable enough. You have to make Indiana Jones age up, and they tried to keep Indiana Jones thirty five to forty five, and you can't do that. No matter how great shape Harrison Ford's in,
0: and the the impact of these movies is so large that any Indiana Jones movie they try to do now is probably going to feel like it's a parody of what an Indiana Jones movie is because it's it's been you know we. The mummy, the 1999 mummy, is basically an Indiana Jones. Like you said, Jurassic World, that character is. And and Indiana Jones has become a type of character now. Even if you look at, uh, you know, when you mentioned him just being cerebral and solving puzzles and that kind of thing, it reminded me of the, this is actually something my my wife brought up while we were watching the movie last night, the Da Vinci Code and like that franchise, which I'm not a fan of, but like that kind of deal, like making him like a Robert Langdon figure.
1: Yeah, and Laura Croft is the female Indiana Jones. Exactly. So there's, and then we got Romancing the Stone where Michael Douglas tried to be a, a type of Indiana Jones. We had Alan Quatermain, where we had Richard Chamberlain trying to be an Indiana Jones. So many ripoffs came out in the eighties after this. And a lot of the guy, uh, you need to have a personality of, of Harrison Ford. I mean, he's the driving force of all of these movies. And it is such a Harrison Ford creation that it is going to be tough. They're going to have to really knock it out of the park if they do an Indiana Jones movie with or without him because if they do it with him it's gonna have to be so good it's gonna have to erase the memory of crystal skull for a lot of people mm-hmm. and i don't know if a trailer can do that i think it's gonna have to be a word of mouth situation and it, other because otherwise that movie's not going to do well just on principle you know it's like i'm not going to go see it because the last one sucked right exactly um but hopefully they'll do one it'll do great or it'll be a good movie it may however it doesn't the box office inconsequential but it's a good movie then people will be ready that's why force awakens which is a good was a, such a good thing is that it kind of reset everybody and reminded people why they love star wars because the prequels kind of everybody was like ah, i don't really you know unless you were nine when the prequels came out right that that reset things now did they Stick the landing on that particular series? No, but they certainly were smart into kind of redo Star Wars for The Force Awakens. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a note-by-note note ripoff. Pretty much. <laughs> but it, they kind of had to, to reintroduce people why they right. love it, because they really hadn't had a good,
0: <laughs> they hadn't had a good Star Wars movie since 1983. Well, plus that was the one they were, it was still a sequel to Return of the Jedi. Those, you know, story-wise, it's picking up from that point too. So right. you you're, you get able to get 70-something-year-old Harrison Ford to come out there and be like, hey, the Jedi and all that, it's real. We're back. It's as serious this time. And, you know, put asses in seats. And and I think that's, it's going to be hard for them to pull a, a Force Awakens or a Blade Runner 2049 for this yeah, you know, for yeah. Indiana Jones at this point in Ford's career, since he already did that is what I keep going back to. It's like, you don't get a second chance at, Hey, whatever happened to Indiana Jones decades well, ago. Uh, I'm I am know.
1: not going to say you don't cause it's Harrison Ford. I think right. Harrison Ford's, he gets second, third chances. Um, cause every time you think he's kind of checked out, he comes back with a fugitive. Oh, that's sure. an amazing movie. Then he was checked out for a little bit. We got six days and seven nights and we got garbage like that. Then air force one. Reminded us how much he's all how awesome he is, you know, so he, he will every once in a while he'll come back. So I it's like James Cameron. I, I, I don't really care about Avatar. Um, I don't think a lot of people even remember it very much. But I'm not gonna bet against him because every time that you do, they bet against him with Titanic, they bet against him in Avatar, and he has killed it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely killed it, and I think he's going to kill it again with whatever he does with Avatar 2, two, three, six, twenty-eight, <laughs> and ninety,
0: he's doing like fifty of them at once. I know. I don't. That's that's the part that worries me. Not you want to do a sequel to Avatar? That's great. The fact that you're planning four of them at once, I'm just like, oh boy. I don't. I mean, one at a time, James. I or maybe know. two to do a trilogy. <laughs> But I like, don't know what pictures he's got of
1: what executive doing whatever, but he, <laughs> he, some, I, I think it was Fox going, Hey, we're getting sold to Disney. They're going to have to do this. Let's forget it. Just, just let's do it. <laughs> I think they just like, it was like a fire sale. It's like, any, you want a five picture deal? You got it. You want a five picture deal? You got it. And then they go, well, <laughs> we're going to sell this to Disney in about six months. So you go right ahead.
0: <laughs> Jeez. And yeah, I think it, in that case, I think it's the fact that, yeah, I don't really care about an avatar two, three, four, any of them. Uh, but I have a feeling he'll make us care when it's time. And the question is whether Indiana Jones Five can do that. And one, one last question that I'm, I swear we're going to get to Raiders. Uh, but this is all relevant, so it's good. Um, how do you feel about James Mangold taking over as director Happy. and not having? Spe- okay, okay, I was
1: just about to say that we've got someone who knows what they're doing. Yes, um, old, uh, you know, Old Man Logan. And he did that Logan movie. That was fantastic. And they did it the right way. They're like, we're going to end it. This is it. I think he, and he understood what you had to do to focus on. You had to focus on his relationship with Charles Xavier and his relationship with this new kid. Uh, because he is supposedly immortal and he just wants to finally die Mm -hmm. because he's just tired of it. And it's, it's, it was, it was fantastic. And knowing that he's taking over gives me hope. Can he land the, I don't know, but it's certainly, he's got a good record and uh, I'm willing to go with that. I, I'm, I don't want to see another, uh, what was his name? David Cope um, or whoever, whoever that, you know, I'm tired of seeing him destroy
0: franchises. Yeah, maybe he'll just do, he'll make the, the next Indiana Jones this super dark, R-rated, and he'll just call it Indy. Like, do yeah. the Logan approach to it.
1: Jones. That's also going to be <laughs> there you go. Jones. And it'll be super dark. It'll be him taking on a Satanist cult of some sort. And uh, he'll have to die at the end to save Marion? Save somebody just to save the world? Whatever. But doing what he did in Force Awakens might be okay, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it, it's crazy because I think that a lot of people had initially pegged J.J. Abrams as kind of the next Spielberg, but I think James Mangold's a lot. Yeah, see, I don't agree with that either. And I actually, I like, I'm a Star Wars fan. I actually grew up with Star Wars more than Indiana Jones. And I think that's just because of this, The, the it just it kind of resurged right around the right time for me. And um, I, I actually like The Force Awakens, even though recognizing that it's a remake but everything else he's done has just been kind of an imitation of someone else. And I feel like Mangold is able to sort of nail genres in just the perfect way that makes the makes it feel true to whatever the material is, but also brings his own, his own, you know, his own spin on them. Like Ford v Ferrari and Logan and pretend uh, no, yeah. to Yuma, which yes, is a remake, but still like he, he, you know, he understands how to adapt his style for different material. And I think I think it's a really smart choice. If that—that's the only probably silver lining that makes me be like, oh well, maybe that Indiana Jones movie, the fifth one, is actually going to be really good. We'll see.
1: Yeah, for me, J.J. Abrams is a Spielberg impersonator. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't do anything original. He and he did this with Lost. It's it's this yeah. ma- it's this uh, mystery box thing that he keeps talking about. The problem with the mystery box, and it's just like if you buy a crappy mystery box at a convention or online. If you open it up, because you can talk about it, what could, what could possibly be in it? Building all this hype for it, and you finally open up the mystery box, and it's a, pun- a bunch of pencils and a rubber stopper? <laughs> people are going to be mad. <laughs> Who
0: for this? Yeah. yeah.
1: That's why Lost, got, people got so mad at Lost, because they really didn't, it was like season three or four, or maybe three and four, were just filler to keep the show going until they figured out what the end was, because they didn't have an end in sight. And it turned off a lot of people. And he does that all the time. Super 8 was the same thing. I was like, oh, we're super excited. Cloverfield, super excited. He can start. He's a good starter. J.J. Abrams is a good starter. He is
0: not a closer. Right. And Super 8 is essentially him being like, look, I can make, you know, Close Encounters meets E.T. or whatever, the Amblin style thing. uh, Yeah.
1: yeah. Look, lens flares. I can do lens flares. (laughs) I can do Star Trek just like Star Wars.
0: You know, that's, (laughs) that's basically what he's doing. Oh, man. So, yeah, James Mangold, I think, if anyone could bring it back, I think that's a pretty good choice. But uh, we should probably move into Raiders. <laughs> this is all, it's all about the franchise, so it's all good. Um, so, obviously, this episode, we're going to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right
1: now. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions something to be taken lightly no one knows its secrets jones do you realize what the ark is
0: it's a transmitter it's a radio for speaking to god it's an army which carries the ark before it is invincible
1: the ark if it is there atonis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb it is protected by forces beyond imagination It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I'll tell you
0: everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was a little bit of the trailer for Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, directed by some guy named Steven Spielberg. Um, So, Craig, we sort of talked about this franchise a lot already uh what is it particularly i'm trying to think where we want to cover now that we've touched on so much about the movie well in the sample, so yeah go well, ahead take let's it away. start
1: with let's start with spielberg um this movie saved spielberg's reputation because this was a movie after 1941 1941 was a massive bomb um, it was a comedy. It was uh, based in 1941. Uh, and, you know, it had uh, what? John Belushi. It had uh, Dan Aykroyd. It had a bunch of people in it. And it was not good. And it was expensive. The movie before that, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was horribly expensive. He, uh, Spielberg and Jaws. Jaws is one of the most famous failures in the history of the world. Because if you talk, talk about it as it is, it's a movie that tripled its budget and tripled its schedule. That is not a success. Mm-hmm. It, it's only because he is able to, was able to manipulate things on the fly and improvise. That movie's mostly improvised. They were writing pages for it the night before because the stupid shark didn't work. But he was, his reputation was if you hire Steven Spielberg, you better fudge the numbers because he is going to go over budget and he's going to go over time. And Time is money, and that's a big deal. When you make a movie, it doesn't matter how great you are. If you're the if you're making Citizen Kane over and over again, but yet you're tripling your budget, no one's going to touch you. And I think that's the the problem. Though Warshawski, uh the Wachowski twins are not twins. The the sisters have right. is that is that they make these big hundred two hundred million dollar movies that not a lot of mainstream people go see. I'm not saying the movies aren't good. I'm just saying. They don't draw in massive crowds. The Matrix was one. That's definitely something they did. But, you know, Speed Racer tanked. Um, Cloud Atlas, everyone seems to like that movie, but nobody went to go pay money for it.
0: I did. I'll, I'll put my hand I saw up for it that. too. And
1: I, I'm not a big Cloud Atlas fan, but I do know that that movie could not have been made for less than $150 million. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. But that was not a $150 million movie for the nationwide that mm. people want to see. And so Spielberg was in a situation where his rep, he probably only had one or two more movies in him. Then his reputation would have been ruined regardless of how much acclaim he'd gotten. So the deal with Lucas was Lucas would produce this movie because they were talking about this on the beach in Hawaii, a very famous story about they were talking about on the beach in Hawaii and they wanted to make a James American James Bond without all the hardware and or a serial kind of movie. So they had this idea going along and, Lucas said, I'll produce it, but you have to do it for the amount of money we talk about, and it has to be done on the time frame. Otherwise, I can't work with you. And that's his friend. Yeah. And I think this is a movie that really reset the mindset of Steven Spielberg, who I I think he might have just got a little full of himself and thought he was the golden child because Jaws went over budget and Jaws went over schedule and it became the biggest movie of all time at that time uh same thing with close encounters of the third guy it was a massive success despite the fact of all the problems so he was getting a little full of himself and if raiders hadn't done well especially since it was under budget and on time it taught him how to redo how to do movies correctly and because that was such a huge success for him and he did it where he did have to you know cut corners and shoot things differently and remove scenes and really streamline it. It, I think it helped his entire career moving forward that now I can be someone that studios can depend on and know that they're going to get a hit. They're going to get quality and it's going to be under budget. And a a lot of people who love movies forget that part of it. It's the business part. A lot of people focus on the show, but you got to focus on the business.
0: Otherwise these movies don't get made. Yeah, it's true. When you bring when you put it in that context, it really is the one that established what a Spielberg what what it means to have Spielberg's name on a poster. Like that cuz he he basically operates in two it's kind of two settings for the most of his career the prestige movie and then the popcorn movie like you know classic 97 the lost world and amistad or you know uh oh 1992 yeah. list and, jurassic and, and jurassic park exactly yeah and i think that it's really where he's fine-tuned tunes. are right how do i how do i lock that blockbuster position in place and uh i think this is the movie that really does that because it, it, it like you said it encompasses. All those elements—it has the comedy, it has the action, it has like the suspense and all that other stuff—and and it gives you the full package in the way that Jurassic Park kind of does, in the way that I feel like Minority Report kind of does, and and some of his other films that fit in that in that wheelhouse. And um, and it is, I think, a, bit, a big part of it comes from the fact that this character is part, you know. Series like nineteen forty serials. He's part James Bond. He's part superhero in a way because he kind of has a secret identity. Um, so I think it's it's it, it fits that. But he's it, not it, invincible. That's no. the key thing about exactly. Indiana
1: Jones, and he leads the way. You can you can connect the dots directly from Indiana Jones to John McClane, Die Hard, where yeah, you've got a main character who, unlike James Bond, James Bond kind of just sashes through you know, fight scenes and machine guns and lasers and all kinds of stuff, looking cool in a tuxedo and saying quippy puns and has a beautiful woman on his arm where Indiana Jones gets punched in the face by (laughs) ex-girlfriends. You know, he gets thrown into holes. Uh, He gets beaten up to the point where he's going to die. And if it wasn't for the fact that this, what they call a, uh, a flying wing if it hadn't have been rotating the right way, he probably would have gotten his ass handed to him and died. But instead, the big German guy got his face chopped off. He, and, it, and then, of course, the big thing that everyone brings up now, because it happened in the Big Bang there, where they talk about, well, if Indiana Jones didn't exist, everything in that movie would have happened the same way. But that's not what the movie's about. Right. Um, so he is not a guy that is super, he is super powered in certain ways. Cause he's obviously, he's extremely lucky. That's where he is. He's extremely lucky. He gets, you know, shot at, he, you know, he hurts like we do, you know, that's that amazing scene in the submarine or on the boat with Chikanda with he's with, um, uh, with the uh, Marion and she's like, ow that hurts. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Well, where doesn't it hurt here? in here and you know it's a character moment but it also shows you that he's just like us except you know he's probably maybe he's a little braver than we are maybe he's just living a different life than we are but he seems like an uh, a regular guy it would seem yeah sorry go ahead no i which a lot of once you start seeing action heroes in the 80s no more regular guys this is the non-steroid amazing <laughs> 80s guy because other other than that you have what rambo you got arnold schwarzenegger (laughs) you get these guys that bulge and harrison ford doesn't bulge he's just he seems like a regular guy he's a good-looking guy but he's like a good-looking average guy like
0: bradley cooper yeah you know yeah that's that's a good that's a good comparison no there there's that aspirational level to him and you you know you mentioned that scene that i was just about to, to the uh, to quote about the it's not the years it's the mileage classic line which apparently was improv mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know yep, that I guess it is. yeah uh, and uh, you know if nothing else he gets hurt and he and he he's scared of snakes just like we are so you have that other that other element sort of and, humanizing him and he makes mistakes
1: and he uh, well nowadays he would definitely not be uh, he'd be a me too guy. Because um, his romance with Marion, she was underage at the time when they first met. That's what the whole point is. That she's only twenty five in the movie, and they dated ten years ago. That's.
0: Mm. I mean, do they do they establish her age in the movie? Because I was looking for that. Because I'd heard that. Well, that she's, supposed kind of she's supposed okay. to be about twenty five. She's supposed to be
1: but you know, and a decade ago, she was just a kid. Right. So she'd be about fifteen, and you know, that's that's more of a character flaw. I mean, it's definitely inappropriate, but that's the point. It was inappropriate. Now, did they actually have feelings for each other? Maybe. I mean, obviously, they get married in the Crystal Skull. Spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. But, um, and that's the other key thing that this movie's so great about, is that we have a heroine that doesn't need to be rescued, even though she does need to be rescued at times, but you know that she can take care of herself most of the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Which, she's not Willie Scott who's screaming constantly. Which is a character from the 30s. It's not Kate Capshaw doing a bad job. She's perfectly doing a st- archetype from the thirties. Uh, I get so upset when people tell me that they don't like
0: Willie Scott because it's, they miss the point of Willie Scott. Right. Uh, she's supposed to be annoying. That's I think <laughs> Marion set the bar too high. I think as far as having like, oh, yeah. strong female action hero yes uh, figures. And uh, in this movie. And then that's why Willie Scott, everybody was like, all right, she's going to be just like Mary and they're just as yep. strong. And they're like, whoa, no, not at all." And then they combine the two with
1: the uh, Ilsa in uh, the last crusade, where you've mm-hmm. got a strong
0: woman who is bad. <laughs> you know? That's uh, more of that bond thing. I think coming into play there, that feels like a more of a James Bond femme fatale. And that was on purpose too, because if you're going to have, a dad, if you're going to have American James Bond, who's his dad right. going to be the
1: original James Bond. And then, then you've got a guy who can, you know, you got James Bond senior who can, who's the other man. I was the other man. Wow. You know, <laughs> that's something you can buy with those two.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. That's, uh, yeah, that's really true. Uh, I wanted to talk about also well, we talked about the, a lot of aspects of the character, but I think also the fact that he's a cynic is not only an easy transition from Han Solo who similarly is like, ah, oh, I don't believe in this Force stuff. And here he's like, you know, magic, supernatural. So what are you trying to scare me? That kind of thing. I, I think that makes this character sort of a uh, a perfect fit for Han Solo, but then also uh, as us coming into the movie, not believing that kind of thing either. I think that that gives that character somewhat of an arc. If he, if he, if there is such a thing in this, do you think that there is a, a character oh, yeah. arc for Indy in this? And Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. The problem is, is they didn't repeat that arc. So we have a guy who's a Mm non-believer. And um, when shown absolute proof of the power of God throughout this whole movie, that's what this is all about is about the power of God is beyond science. There are things in the world that even, you know, scientists, which archaeologists can be considered a scientist cannot prove. At some point you have to go on some things on faith and Indiana Jones learns that through this movie. That's his journey. Is him? It's a religious movie about him learning his faith, maybe even coming back to his faith. But the problem is, then they make the next movie. And the next movie is a different religion with another absolute proof of this other religion working. And it's, it shows that he didn't learn anything. Because Temple of Doom is a prequel. Yeah, technically. Yeah, it's a prequel. So it's supposed to have happened before Ray's Lost Ark. You would think after going through that, having seen someone's heart pulled out of their chest uh, and him almost having his heart in him, he would be a lot more in, in the belief section starting of Ray's Lost Ark, and he's not. Even at the, in Last Crusade, he's still not a believer at the beginning of that movie, but it's the same arc. He, with undeniable proof, he then has to, on faith leap from the lion's head and hope that the cup of Christ will heal his father. Cause there's no proof of evidence of that besides myths. But that's the problem with the Indiana Jones movies is at the beginning, he's a non-believer at the end, he's a believer. And if you're going to continuation that, that means he didn't learn anything. If the next movie he starts
0: off as a non-believer. Yeah. he finishes an adventure, walks away, bunks his, bumps his head and immediately forgets yeah. everything that just happened, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, I was, I was wondering, is there, You know, Is there any reason why they just made Temple of Doom a prequel? Couldn't it have just easily been set after this? What is the rationale for for that as someone who's less uh, informed on the Indiana Jones? Uh, You know what?
1: I I don't know. I think they just wanted to show that Indiana Jones had been having adventures all along. And so they were just going back. I think they might have wanted to deal with the time frame as well. Because starting in... 1940s and i am not a historian so this is not but i believe through my doctor who knowledge um, in the 40s in the late in the 50s as we continue the journey of indiana jones um, outside of world war ii i believe that's when india and pakistan divided and so the british influence was not as as deep and they were really going for the shankara stone indian myth so they had to move it back to the point where the British were actually in control of India.
0: And I don't believe they were in the late forties, early fifties. I feel like something they could have probably fudged and no one would have asked. Uh, uh, I, I don't, don't would have avoided know this issue. I don't think
1: so because I think at that time, so many people you have to realize this is would have been 84
0: yeah, yeah, Well, it's only
1: 40 years right. later. It's not like it's a totally, it's not 100 years later. So I think a lot of people know what was going on in the 50s. Um, now you could do something in the 50s and people wouldn't know because it's, you know, 70 years later. It's right. a bit the, the time frame was too close. And then they okay. went back, obviously, they went back to Nazis uh, with his dad because it works. It's just like, well, what, just what worked in the first movie, let's get back to what people love. And then they made it a little more slapsticky funny. Which wasn't bad. they did it in a good way, bringing in Harry, um, Sean Connery was perfect, and so that dynamic worked. It could have bombed. But thankfully, it worked. I think Salah was the worst uh, he got the worst of it in the last Crusade. He went from a, an amazing, accomplished digger uh, of Egypt to some goofy buffoon that doesn't know his ass from his elbow in the last Crusade. Yeah, that's true. Uh I, so did Marcus Brody. Marcus Brody went to be an idiot as well. So they really did a disservice with those characters in The Last Crusade for the sake of comedy.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I, they are yeah, they're they're I think really strong additions to this film and I think this is a good sort of jumping off point to the rest of the supporting cast. So obviously, Karen Allen, we mentioned how oh. How great she is in this movie. Uh, you know how many kids, uh, young men, hit puberty watching Raiders of Love, <laughs> because there are. Uh,
1: because she's not the typical glamorous blonde haired right. starlet, but she is this gorgeous girl next door tomboy that you know, you kind of really want to have versus, yeah, oh, I got this hot lady on my arm, big deal. That looks great for a little bit. But like I tell everybody, doesn't matter how great you look, someone is sick of your shit. Yeah. Um, But if you have a Marion who is smart and tough and can drink big guys on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, What a great introduction for her. Fantastic. Because it shows you that we're not dealing with a typical Hollywood female we're 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 dealing with a actual person who has you know attributes that are going to come in useful later on she's not just there to be rescued she is there she's his goddamn partner she says it in the movie Mm -hmm. and it was great and it's that kind of person you didn't see a lot of back then now Mm -hmm. they're all over the place they're great that's great you want to see more but now back then that was a a revelation and people tried desperately to try to find a something else like that and always missed out i don't know if it's karen allen or it's the it's the the way she portrayed it or it's just the writing it's just no one's ever quite gotten it
0: until recently how to write women i think it's it's a testament to the fact that this franchise didn't have another strong female character like that until they just went back to marion for the fourth one and i think that's one of the the things that pretty much one of the elements of crystal skull that pretty much everyone can agree on good move, bringing Karen Allen back into it. Uh, again, yes. a Good move. But again, they made her a little bit too
1: love Lauren. She, uh, she was, she was there. Not, she's not to say she's a gold digger, but she is there just to get married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I wish it had, if she had been Marion and I don't think she, I don't feel like she was Marion. I felt that she was so, uh, so like a, a spinster who couldn't wait to get married. Uh, I don't know who was pining over Indiana Jones this whole time. I don't think she would have done that. I would, I would have liked to seen the old Marion back just aged appropriately matured
0: and still had fallen back in love with Indy. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I think, well, I mean, I didn't, I <laughs> wasn't saying the story. It was great. I, having her back in the fold. Oh, yes. was a smart move. Absolutely. 100%. I just think they
1: misused her. Yeah. It, it's
0: I, It's also fun in this movie too, because she is such a strong character Uh, In a genre that doesn't normally have female characters with this much much agency with this much intelligence who can hold their own Against the the male, uh, you know villains or heroes I, I this movie tries to kind of put her in the damsel in distress thing She gets kidnapped by belloc and and even then like the movies are trying to fit her in this little You know, let's put a round uh, peg in a square hole kind of thing. So you're trying to put her in this role and even then she's trying to finagle her way out of it. I thought she that was, almost did. She very little yeah, very almost very close. I
1: mean, the, it. if it was just timing, if she had done that twenty minutes earlier, the Toto wouldn't have come in, a tote wouldn't have come in and she would have been able to escape because she had Belloc drunk. Mm-hmm. And and that was a great setup of that initial scene of her in Nepal drinking people under the table. You knew that she was not gonna little tiny Belloc, in a way paul i like paul freeman but he's not going to be able to drink her under the table uh, if that big guy wasn't so it was a great setup it was a great payoff it's just that she just like indiana jones a lot of it's all timing and he always just missed the arc was always getting on a plane
0: it was getting on a you know on a submarine it was she was just oh just missed it (laughs) his superpower is luck kind of (laughs) like uh what's her name domino in the deadpool but uh, yeah, the this, this, this script is so tightly written and constructed. I mean, you have you just mentioned I had a note about setup payoff that every little detail that is is mentioned earlier in this film comes back around in some way, shape, or form. The the illustration with the power of God shooting out of it, which obviously we see much more graphically later on. Uh, the thing with the snakes, uh, every little it, it's just so. It, it's it's one of those movies that there's a reason. Why it has inspired so many imitators, why every studio executive uh, under the sun was anxious to get like a jungle set adventure with an Indiana Jones uh, character in production after this came out. Absolutely. And it's also easier to make than Star Wars Mm -hmm. because we
1: just go to Hawaii and shoot in the jungle. A lot of the times, especially in those old serials in the 30s, you just go to Southern California in the hills. Uh, and it, it didn't look like any jungle you ever been on, but, you know, people in Nebraska don't know. So, uh, you know, you can make those movies at a, at a lower budget, and you could get more people seeing them. They're just fun movies, and that's why they tapped into the post-70s paranoia and said, look, we're going to make movies fun again. And I think this Star Wars and this really launched that, you know, movies are fun they don't all have to be taxi driver. They don't all have to be mean streets. You know, they don't all have to be these depressing apocalypse now kind of things where you're, you can actually go to the movies and still have fun and enjoy yourself. And that's what Lucas and Spielberg do. Uh, Spielberg has gotten away from that, which is fine. Cause when he does as much, he's doing a lot of relevant social issues and political issues. So I'm not upset that he is not doing as many action movies, but I still, when he still does one, they're still fantastic.
0: Yeah. And I, I like the specifically the the use of practical effects in in these movies uh, has aged aged so well. I mean, even even the, I'd say I'd say the most dated effects are maybe the face melting, but it yes. still looks so cool. Like it doesn't, it, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't yeah. matter. Like it looks, it's supposed to be otherworldly, and it looks otherworldly, so it still fits in something like a, a lot. And that's a lot. It goes for a lot of movies in the 80s. I'd say the same thing about something like Beetlejuice or, or whatever, where it's more of the stop motion effect. I, 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 uh, how do you feel about the visual effects in this movie and the fact that we have that iconic opening sequence where there is no CGI or, or anything like that you know, that immediately starts you rolling your eyes? I'm trying to think there's very little
1: CGI. There's some matte paintings, yeah. and, but there's no actual special effects. You know, The tarantulas are real. Uh, the darts are real. The boulder was real. It was made out of fiberglass, but it was still real, and it still weighed a lot of money. I mean, it still, it still weighed a lot. weighed a lot, and it cost a lot of money. And had Harrison Ford not kept running, he would have been severely hurt. Um, they had to build that wing, that flying wing that ran over his leg and tore a, a tendon. Uh, you know, they had to actually get. Seven thousand snakes or snake-like animals. They didn't really use a lot of snakes. There's some kind of weird lizard that looks like a snake. But it was also the '80s, so in the very early '80s, so practical effects was how you went. And this kind of movie lends itself to practical effects quite well. I think the 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 craziest thing in the movie is the the truck scene where they're fighting on the truck and he gets towed underneath. And if you, if you look real close, you can see how they did it, but because it's just like Jaws where you don't see the shark for almost like 45 minutes to an hour, by the time you do, you've already bought into the terror of Jaws that when you see the big dumb rubber shark, if I showed you a picture of it out of context, you'd be like, yeah, that looks fake. But after sitting in the movies for an hour, you totally forget that that's a fake shark and you totally forget that. Yeah. Harrison Ford's sitting in a chair that just happens to be in the front of that truck. And yes, he's in a ditch being dragged under the truck car. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> you can see how it's done, but only if you take the time to look the way they edit it, the way they do everything you, you, they do it in such a way that it's so practical. It's, it feels real and it's, it's perfect. It's, it's, that's how they should do it. And I think that's the problem with the movies in the early two thousands. And I think they're getting away from that is, Yes, CGI is important, but it needs to be tapered, you know, tapered down with some practical effects. Because if something is real, people will believe it more. Even if it's not true. Even if it's a, a, a puppet. You know, That's why they went back to a puppet Yoda for the sequels. Because he looks more realistic. It's just, it just does. The CGI stuff only should be used when you can't do anything else
0: that's something that Spielberg in particular has really kept in mind throughout his career. I mean, look at something like Jurassic Park, which came out what 30 years ago and still looks better than Jurassic World as far as the dinosaurs and and the terror that they that they, you know, invoke and it's in a movie like this that's set in the jungle, it lends itself to that, but it's also the stunt work and just it's like I think I think filmmakers often just forget that your movie is eternal. You know, you're not going to see it. People aren't going to go see it in the theaters and then forget about it, especially now um, with the streaming and everything. Like people are going to rewatch those a million times, freeze-frame them, uh, scrutinize things and all of that. And the technology will evolve, but practical effects, if it's something's really there on set, it's really there. And you can, you can still tell the difference. Uh, you know, We mentioned earlier about the monkeys in, in Crystal Skull, which uh. looked awful then and it's been 12 years so i imagine it looks even worse now uh but this movie feels like it could have come out yesterday in a lot in in large regard
1: yeah and you could do it very similar then you know because the stuff that you're talking about you don't need any fantasy laser beams or spaceships um it's all practical cuz it's also based in the in the 40s so you don't have to worry about all that right right so uh, it's It's such a well-crafted, and then the one thing we haven't talked about is the music. Yep, I was going to get to that. Because John Williams, the maestro, um, it's like he can do no wrong from 1970 to 1995. Uh, Not that he was doing wrong after that, it's just that there's so many iconic fanfares and movie music that everything was so great, and he can tempo it cuz you you the swelling music when he gets on that horse god it's uh, you get you get excited for you and you know an action scene's coming up but you know that he's doing it for the right reasons cuz the music tells you he is it's not just music just to be there to fill in the silence it's so great it's it's just it's it gets tough to even talk about when it comes to music because you have to listen to it and it's one of those things that John Williams he can play he does music that you can just listen to you don't have to watch a movie you just listen to the music the music's great on its own
0: Yeah, that's why whenever I get it, 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 the rare occasion they have uh, Blu-rays or DVDs or whatever of movies scored by John Williams, where they have the music only track, I'm always like, oh yeah, we're going to (laughs) do Superman. I mean, because if we talked right now and we did an episode on the top 10 most memorable movie themes of all time, like seven of them would be John Williams. I was going to say eight, probably. Seven or eight are going to be John Williams. Star Wars, uh, Indiana Jones, E.T., Superman, Jurassic Jurassic Park. Park. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy that the man is that prolific and you know i mentioned earlier about how uh i didn't see these movies that much obviously I, I the music was burned into my head but even temple of doom which i haven't seen probably now in at least 20 years probably 25 ish more like like that uh i can hum the the uh the main music from temple of doom because i had the video game of temple of doom on <laughs> nintendo uh, so I have that... Like in my... Etched in yep. my brain. And that's John Williams again. So it's it's uh, a huge part of this. Kind of like... And the reason I keep bringing up Star Wars is that they're these two franchises are so interlinked by Lucas, oh, yeah. by Ford, by Williams, by... Yeah, they have the da- same DNA. They're shared yeah, by the absolutely. same... Th- that serial DNA. But
1: Temple of Doom has these quintessential shot of Indiana Jones when that mine car comes up, he's in all in shadow and then you see him and he's going to get ready to punch people. Mm-hmm. And he's just, I mean, there's so many iconic pictures from Raiders from Temple of Doom. I mean, they're, they're posters and it's just, and that's in the movie. That's the great part. It's in yeah. the movie, the poster. So it's, it's one of those things where, Yeah, I'm probably more susceptible to it because it did happen while I was 8, while I was 12, while my brain hadn't fully formed, and I was still being inundated with all this stuff. But as I get close to 50, I still look at it, and I go back and I've seen some movies that don't hold up, and these still hold up. Jaws still holds up. God, Jaws is even more relevant now than ever.
0: Oh yeah, for sure you mentioned you mentioned the the shots and then just I wrote I made a note of the very beginning the very first shot of this movie like yeah I think there's something to be said for sure about seeing this at the right age and having it say hit you in the nostalgia feels and all that decades later but it does also objectively an incredibly well crafted movie like whether the whether it's someone's bag or not like whether it, it like it's it, it is a personal favorite, or whatever. Whether they see it now and they're just like, eh, okay, it's so like well made in in technically from the cinematography to like as we said the score and the effects and stuff. But the first shot is the Paramount logo that dissolves into the mountain. Mm-hmm. And just even something, even that, I was like, oh crap! I forgot. That's so cool. I forgot that that's the first shot of this movie. It's the and, shot of
1: every movie of Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah, remember oh, yeah, the uh, it's true. on the gong is uh, Temple of Doom has the Paramount Mountain on the gong, and then um, they have it in Utah. That's right. They're in the, the the desert of Utah, where one of the mountains looks like Paramount. And then oh, this is why Crystal Skull sucks. Is they've got a gopher hole or a no, prairie dog hole. That looks oh, like that's it. right. Mm. It is. It's like a, yeah. Uh, that should have warned you right then that when you see that, like it, this is going to be just a, a gopher hole of a movie. <laughs> oh, you're going to step in it. You're going to break your leg and you're going to cry for an hour and a half until someone rescues you.
0: It should have just been like a pile of shit shaped like the Paramount Mountain. I'm surprised they back. didn't do that from like <laughs> Jurassic
1: Park and just said, that's a big pile of shit. Yeah. Cause it, it might as well have been. Hopefully you got to have a iconic mountain of, but even though Paramount, I don't even know if they'd still be doing it.
0: I, I, you know, I don't know. Cause I think Disney owns it now. Yeah. I think it just falls under the Lucasfilm banner. So yeah, I, I believe that is that it would still be the case. Uh, who knows, you know, when, if, if the fifth one's going to happen, when it happens, it's supposed to, so we'll see. I mean, but, but yeah, so that's, I wonder how that's going to work under Disney's ownership. Uh, but even just the opening sequence, obviously iconic, the the boulder and all that. But like there's even me not having watched this movie all the way through for many, many years. I was like, oh, this is the part where he, you know, he like rubs his chin and nerv- nervously as he gets the sand out of the bag and like tries to guess how much the idol weighs. And then you have Alfred Molina in the back, like rubbing his fingers in anticipation, like all of that is just shot for shot. Just so... Um, so impressive. And, and it, it really gives you the, this sort of mythic introduction for Indy as you see the whip and he kind of emerges from the shadows and all of that.
1: Yeah, Alfred Molina's very first role on screen. hmm He looks so young. He really does. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's how it is. You, you're automatically dealing with someone who is calm, cool, and collected because uh, you see the, he finds the uh, poison darts. Then he's brushing off tarantulas. Then he's showing him the trap with the light, which I still don't understand how they have photosensitive traps in this thing. Um, You know, he's, he's whipping across caverns and he's getting ready to steal this thing. And it's in true Indiana form. He screws up. Mm -hmm. He misjudges. He, you know, it's too heavy. He runs, he gets out. And what happens at the very beginning Bellack comes in and steals what's quote unquote, rightfully Indiana Jones. And that is pretty much sums up the movie over and over again. We're going to constantly see he's going to, he's going to escape. He's going to run. He's going to fly out of there, but he's constantly getting in and out of jams all the time, rarely succeeding, which is interesting for a hero.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a microcosm of the whole movie. I think that's why. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's why that sequence works so well. It it tells you everything you need. Even just like you were saying, he he knows about the trap. So obviously he's intelligent. He's well researched. He's very Batman esque. And to go back to you know our mention of uh, the Pattinson movie, that that's the world's greatest detective. He has sort of that aspect to him too. But then he <laughs> but then he's human and he, and he he botches the whole thing. But yeah, that's uh, it, it's it's a great. It's, a, it's an objectively great movie. It's not one that personally is like one of my favorites because didn't, I didn't have the same experience, but I think it, I understand why it is for so many people, why it is for you and why it's, it's considered such a classic just because there's so many pieces that had to fall perfectly in place for this movie to happen and to work as well as it does. And you, can, you have to like you know tip your fedora uh, <laughs> in Indiana style to that. Yeah, because the casting's great. Um, I mean, Karen Allen
1: wasn't well-known, but she's perfect for this role. I mean, Harrison Ford was not supposed to be this. It was supposed to be Tom Selleck. There was a bunch of other people that they had um, auditioned for, and they only hired Harrison Ford three weeks before production. Um, you know, the, the music came out perfectly. The only thing that we knew was going to be good was Steven Spielberg's direction, and even then we didn't know if he was going to be on time and under budget. Right, exactly. So uh, a lot of things had to fall into place. Um But thankfully, just like Indiana Jones, he lucked into a lot of things. And yeah, maybe Crystal Skull is the, fi- fi- the final part where now he's running from a boulder. Because the franchise is now under attack from the mistake that he made.
0: Mm, that's true. Well, we'll hopefully... Hopefully he can escape in the nick of time and uh, and have, go back to uh, go back to his archaeology job or, or his professor job with his tail between his legs. That's kind of the Indiana uh, the Indiana way, I guess. Uh, he it, seems like he'd be the worst professor too. He does. It almost it feels like. I think my wife even asked me while we were watching. She's like, "So is this his cover?" And I was like, "I know. I think he's really a professor." No, he's really a professor. This is what they did back in the thirties and forties: right. is
1: that professors would teach because they could get the money to fund digs. And so the, it's kind of like you got to do the, you got to right. eat your vegetables before you can get to dessert. And the dig was dessert for them. So yeah, this was, and he, right off the bat, he comes back and he's showing them the pieces that he got and they're going to sell them. And that'll get money for the college. So mm-hmm. it, him finding these relics for a museum is his way of making money. And it's his, his job. And it's a way of financing more digs and also financing the college, he just happens to, on occasion, like we saw in Temple of Doom, uh, make some mistakes where he... Is it really archaeology, or is it just grave robbing? Yeah. Because I I do have a feeling that he has destroyed several historical sites. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just for a gold trinket. So, um, but that is also how they did archaeology back in the early 1900s, is it it wasn't
0: really about preserving the site. It was getting all the golds and riches. It was fortune and glory. He seems so buttoned up and so uncomfortable in the, in the, in the classroom too. I think that's, that's probably part of why my wife was like, why is he, is this like his thing? Cause he doesn't seem like he's, he seems out of his, out of his element. And you can, like you said, it's, he just like, okay, let me get through this so I can go and, and go on another adventure. I hate yeah. this crap. Well, that's I, but why, I, go ahead. That's, go ahead. Why
1: that's why he's sneaking out of, uh, out of his office and the, the last crusade. Cause he, the, the, he has to teach so he can do everything else. And he doesn't want to, I think the only thing that's a, he gets a benefit from it is at, you know, I, there's a hint that he might be sleeping with some students. Um, that girl with the, I love you on her. eyebrow. Uh-huh. I don't think that was a, uh, just a, Oh, let Unrequited. me just try this. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to just try this. I think that's probably one of his, uh, Oh, okay. I've been hitting on her for a while. Now she's finally saying, yeah. And I, cause I, I know that first scene with Marcus Brody where, they discuss him leaving and he's packing his bags and he's in this robe. He is supposed to have had a girl at at his Mm -hmm. house at that time. That was supposed to be the situation. That's why he's dressed that way. Right. And so I I have a feeling if, if Marion is any indication that he's probably a professor that sleeps with his students, he's probably a little bit of a drinker and he will bend
0: the law when it's necessary. I I love that the movie acknowledges the fact that, Harrison Ford is teaching the class and which is why it's like 95% girls that are that are in love with him <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> because I'm like if I was if Harrison Ford taught at my school I would I understand like I get it he's a good-looking guy so I understand why everybody's like look at this guy he's so dreamy and the whole like it pans across the class and it's almost all young women kind of gazing up at him like I don't care what he say look at how beautiful he is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that, it's I, funny that the movie acknowledges that Oh, sure. That's
1: uh, and that makes perfect sense, too. He's the he's that good looking young teacher, though. He's not that young. He's in his 30s. So but he's that good looking, rugged teacher that all the girls flock to. And and maybe his class was easy, too, because if he wasn't there a lot,
0: you know, maybe he got a reputation of, you know, he's going to pass you just show up. Yeah, yeah, exactly um is there anything about Raiders of the Lost Ark that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure we uh we mention before we start winding down
1: oh man I don't know I mean I could I could go on forever and I don't <laughs> want to do that um no we talked about uh we talked about Harry we talked about Steven like I know these guys we talked about uh Sala how he got shafted um we talked about Marion we talked about the music we talked about the editing with the stunts there's really not much. I mean, we did not talk about the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. We did not. Which were actually not bad for what they were. Um, They were television. And so you have to take that as different. There's different expectations for television than they are for movies. And, and in that he was, it was almost like, it was almost like Forrest Gump. He was meeting historical figures every week, but that was (laughs) the goal of the show. Um, and I thought they were great. Uh, the, I do remember the episode Harrison Ford showed up in, in, because it was a night of a blizzard in my hometown. And I, we, were, we lived just outside of town. And so we had an antenna. This is before cable. And so it kept on going out. And they kept on interrupting the show with weather updates. So I kept on getting mad because I knew Harrison Ford was finally on the young Indiana Jones Chronicles and they kept on interrupting it with weather announcements. And I was, I missed most of it. And I, so that means I had to wait for a rerun. Oh man. <laughs> but that was when he was doing the fugitive cause he had the fugitive beard on and, and it was, and he learned that he could play the flute. It was, it was
0: a really weird episode. Yeah, he kept talking about not how he didn't kill his wife. And everybody was like, what is he talking about? Yeah. <laughs> totally out of context. I did not kill my wife. The Finger of Doom, <laughs> we didn't talk about that.
1: But yeah, that's Harrison Ford's famous finger. Um, I did have a chance to actually meet Harrison Ford. So, uh, Oh, wow. I met him on the set of Random Hearts in New York City. I had just moved to New York City in 1998. It was about October. I think it was October, September. And I went out walk in the neighborhood. Cause I just moved there like a week before. So I didn't have a job. I didn't know the neighborhood. And I noticed they had a sign on the, on the light pole that the street was closed for filming. Cause that's what they do. They posted it see, and I just snuck past the rope and I walked down the thing. And all of a sudden there is a film crew and there's Sydney Pollack directing at video village. And I had lunch with the Dennis Haysbert and Charles S Dutton. Um, and then Harrison Ford chomping on a cigar walked by, and I'm like, "Mr. Ford, can I get your autograph?" And he signed my daytimer, which I still have uh, on the wrong day. He he signed it on the wrong day, but I have. <laughs> I just opened it up. I wasn't expecting. him. And we talked about Mosquito Coast for a minute, and which is what, which is actually my favorite Harrison Ford performance. And uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I I hope I have a chance to meet him just to say thank you because from what I understand, he's not always the nicest guy. He's a little bit of a grumpy curmudgeon. Mm -hmm. But to me, he was fantastic. And um so yeah, it was great. And I got to meet John Reese Davies as well, Salah. He was a sweetheart. So um my experience with everybody from Indiana Jones that I've met, all nice people. That's good to hear. Karen Allen is the sweet Karen Allen's a sweetheart. I haven't met her, but I know people who have met her. She's wonderful. Um unfortunately, you know, Marcus Brody's passed, Sean Connery doesn't go out in public unless you go to Bermuda. I don't have anything. I mean, I know Alfred that the Molina is round. out
0: there somewhere. And Paul, Alfred Paul Molina's Freeman, a I don't great know if still I, around. Yeah. Uh, is who Paul Freeman? Is he still around? Oh, Paul Freeman? Freeman. Yeah. He was in hot, uh, hot fuzz or wasn't he in he um... was, he wasn't hot. Fuzz. Yeah. But I, I, he... I shockingly, whenever I see his name, I was like, wait a minute wasn't that Ivan Ooze in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie? Because I was like, right. Like I like that movie came out on my 12th birthday and I was really into Power Rangers at the See, time. Yeah. You're, you're See, that, a different generation. Cause I know, I, I know. See, that's a movie that I've saw that I've seen in the last few years. Like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, I like it for nostalgic reasons, but like, oh, uh, not a great film, but it's, so oh, he's the best thing in it. Cause he's hamming it up. And, uh, you really playing like to the back of the room with how over the top and ridiculous his performances, but he, yeah, he's a lot of fun in that. What Uh, next? I I think think, we got everything covered. I I I think think I did. Yeah. I think, I think we covered pretty much, uh, did like a nice swath of uh, coverage on Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark as it's been retitled. How do Ugh. you feel about Lucas okay. and his retitling? Nah, it, you know what? As long as he doesn't
1: swap out the you know guns for walkie-talkies like he did with ET, right? Spielberg did. Then he swapped them back. He said that was stupid. You yeah, I mean, made a mistake, guys. Yeah, the the only thing they've ever done for touch-up. Because, you know, Lucas does like to go back. The only thing they've ever done for touch-up is when they re-released it on Blu-ray, they took the reflection of Harrison Ford's face and the snake out. Because if you remember... The plexiglass. Yeah, the plexiglass, you can see it. Um, you could always see the snake's reflection and you could also see a little bit of Harrison's reflection in it. And they
0: did digitally remove that. But that's the only thing. Because there's,
1: there's nothing to take out of that right. movie. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Yeah, I think it, I'm. I think that the the title, the retitling, or, or whatever. Yeah, I think just consistency. It's exactly. I was just about to say. I, a part of me is like, okay, good. Now they all have Indiana Jones. I'm like a stickler for consistency in in some regards. So I'm like, okay, that's not so bad. It's just prefacing it with Indiana Jones and so like the other films. But um, Craig Price, if there is nothing else, can you tell people where they can find you on social media?
1: Well, I am at Matinee Heroes everywhere. So matineeheroes.com, matineeheroes on Twitter, matineeheroes on Instagram. Um, Our show, Cast Off, is the uh, game show that we do. You can find that at matineeheroes.com slash cast off. It's on YouTube, but we haven't got the uh, magical custom URL yet, uh, because we're working on that. It's just something that I've been experimenting with during the the, uh, COVID. Um, It was actually something I would do at conventions, because I I moderate at a lot of Comic-Cons. And one of the things that I was offering this year, and it was accepted to about five of them until they got all got canceled, was we were going to take the recasting as a competition live where the audience could vote on it. And so when that dissolved, I said, let's take it online and see if we can do it there. And so that's what we've been doing. So hopefully we'll be doing it live at a convention near you, but we will continue on. I think we're going to, we're going to reevaluate and see what we did right, what we did wrong and maybe uh, relaunch season two in the next couple of weeks.
0: Cool. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much for bringing Raiders of the Lost Ark to the table. It's a, it was a good chance for me to go back and rewatch it. My wife and I actually have a list of movies that we've been meaning to watch together. And this was on that list. So I finally got the chance to cross that off. Yeah. Uh, so so thank you for getting me the chance to go back and rewatch that. And How did your welcome- wife like it? She likes it okay. I mean, she she hadn't seen it, period. Which I was right. like, how did you not see it at all? Like oh. I mean, it maybe was a kid a long time ago, or something, but she had never she's the same age as me. So I, I was just surprised that she hadn't seen it at all. She, like me, was more more grew up with Last Crusade and like seeing that around. Because again, kind of like, you know, we were eight when this came out, we were six when uh Last Crusade came out. So that was like right in our age age range. Um but yeah, so she liked it, you know. Okay, it didn't really. I, I feel like this movie in particular, it, it really does not. Not that it relate, relies so much on nostalgia, but when you see a movie like this that has been so influential decades later, you've seen every yeah. other version of it. It, mm-hmm. it loses its its uh, you know its freshness a little bit, and I, that's unfortunate. But it's it, it just I think is a, a testament to how much of a of a how how much this movie changed cinema and the way these kinds of movies were were approached
1: well i really thank you for letting me come on and talk about it for way too long uh, I, <laughs> that's what we do here I, we, we always run long it's all good but i really appreciate it and uh i again i i really enjoyed it so thank you
0: yeah absolutely you're welcome back anytime we'll have to come up with something else to talk about I can probably do that. We can let me, we can do another. We do witness. How's that? We could talk about Amish people for two hours. <laughs> you never know. Hey, that, that will work. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob.
1: This has been a production of CrookedTable.com.
0: All rights reserved. <laughs>